The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, a colossal true crime story finally goes to trial. The Doomsday Cult Mom murder trial, Idaho versus Lori Vallow Daybell. Her and her husband, Chad Daybell, will stand trial separately for three murders. Lori's two young children, J.J. Vallow and Tylee Ryan, and Chad's late wife, Tammy Daybell. The state alleges that the motive lies in a desire for sex, money, and power, in addition to an obsession with end times prophecies. Court TV's Chanley Painter joins me from Boise, Idaho, as we unpack the biggest moments so far from the case against Lori Vallow Daybell. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thank you so much for downloading the Court TV Podcast special episode this week. There is a huge trial we are covering in Idaho, and it's a case that you won't see any of the testimony on Court TV, but you will hear it. It's because the judge has banned cameras from the courtroom. So it's the perfect trial for a podcast. It's the case involving a woman named Lori Daybell. Some call her Lori Vallow Daybell, and some just call her the doomsday cult mom. She's accused of murdering her two children and also conspiring to murder the first wife of her fifth husband. Her fifth husband is Chad Daybell. He is the so-called doomsday prophet. His wife uh, died. Lori's husband was shot and killed by her brother. Then her children disappeared, and they were found buried in Chad's backyard. Yeah, I know it's a lot, folks. It's a lot. This is a very complicated, layered story that is absolutely fascinating, and we are covering it every day on Court TV and every night on my show and helping us cover it because we don't have cameras in there. We need someone who can see what is actually happening. Court TV legal correspondent Chanley Painter is in Boise, Idaho, and she joins us now on the podcast. Chanley, this is the most difficult trial to try to summarize. You just can't summarize this one. You can't. It's complicated. There's lots of twists and turns, years of evidence, and it's a circumstantial case, Vinny. So all these pieces to the puzzle that prosecutors are having to put together for this jury to make sense. And I remember when I was first, you know, we first started doing this story almost three years ago, it was, okay, Chandler, you're going to take the lead on the Daybell saga. Then I spent like two full weekends just trying to wrap my head around the facts in this case. (laughs) And then that was three years ago. So we have three more years of developments as well. It's really unreal. Um, So there's a there's a lot of dead people. There's uh, two dead spouses. There's two dead children. There's a dead brother. There's a dead prior husband. There's a lot of things that have happened here. But let's get into the trial, because I think something that is 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 going pretty well for prosecutors is is that they've tried to make this case um, more simple, more straightforward and with with definitive themes about trying to summarize and and explain to this jury what this case is about. Let's take a listen. Money, power, and sex. That's what this case is about. The defendant, Lori Vallow Daybell, 
use money, power, and sex, or the promise of those things, to get what she wanted. What she wanted was money, power, and sex. It didn't matter what obstacle she had to remove to get what she wanted. It didn't matter if the obstacle was a thing or a person. And if it was a person, it didn't matter who. Tylee Ryan was a vibrant young woman, 17 years old, a whole life ahead of her. She was just about to enter into adulthood and make her own way in the world. Who knows what she would have become. Tylee had already lost her father, and she received Social Security benefits because of that. Tylee had money. Lori wanted it. Tylee's gone. Joshua Jackson Vallow, lovingly known by friends and family as JJ, was a seven-year-old, vibrant, happy-go-lucky little boy. He had most of his childhood and his whole life ahead of him. But JJ was, was tough. He's, he's a seven-year-old. He took a lot of time and effort and energy to care for. That time, effort, and energy took away from the defendant doing what she wanted to do and from the defendant being with Chad Daybell and devoting her time and attention to him. I love the way she lays it out. Uh, Chanley, let's let's go through this theme of money, power, and sex that the prosecution is, is laying out here for the jury. Um, let's start with the sex. Who is it that Lori Vallow Daybell, according to prosecutors, wants to have sex with? Chad Daybell, the prolific author and married man, father of five. So he's married with children. She's married with children. Her husband gets shot and killed by her brother. His wife tragically dies and, and they marry. So where does the, so they end up, I guess, having the sex and probably had it before they got married, I would think, uh, especially since there's testimony of them making out on the campus of uh, Brigham Young University. Right. How about that? How about that image, folks? Um, so where does the money come into play? How is there a monetary um, incentive here for her, according to prosecutors, to commit and conspire to commit these murders? Before I answer that, first of all, Vinny, they must have been watching your show over the years because you had this peg from the beginning of what this case was really about, right? Sex <laughs> and greed. Uh, and they're the first words out of their mouth, the prosecutors, you know, money, sex, and power. So the money comes into play for why? Tylee and JJ uh, would be more beneficial to her dead than alive in that she was collecting nearly $6,000 a month in social security benefits from you know, JJ uh, and his father's death, Charles Bellow, and Tylee and her father's death, Joseph Ryan. And then she also herself received some from Charles Bellow's death. So she was going to pocket some money, plus life insurance policy. She believed that Charles Vallow had a $1 million life insurance policy, much to her surprise. He had already switched it over to his sister, Kay. And same with Tammy Daybell, uh, Chad, Chad Daybell's wife. On the day that prosecutors say Tylee Ryan was murdered, Chad Daybell is calling the life insurance company for his wife, maximizing it to $430,000. How about that? So it's 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 old fashioned. Now, 
you know, people would argue just get divorced. But the, the, the problem is if you have children, um, they cost money too. So there's a negative flow when you're raising children. Every parent knows that. But there were social security payments, as you said, coming to the kids because they had lost their fathers. And so when the children disappeared and were actually dead and buried in her new husband's backyard, she continued to collect those payments. She did. So between October 2019 to February 2020, when she was arrested finally in Hawaii, she collected, I believe it was twin, more than $22,000 after the deaths of her children, pocketing all that, which is the basis for the grand theft charges she's been indicted for in this trial. That's what the jury's hearing about the money part uh, as motive and also because she stole, allegedly, all this money. So where does the power come into play? So we've got the sex, right? She, she gets her husband and her kids out of the way so she can go to Hawaii um, to have this life with uh, the man that she's just enthralled with, the prophet Chad. Um, where's the power? So the power comes in that, again, this is a conspiracy case. They allege that while Lori was not the one who physically murdered her own children, she manipulated, coerced, and ordered it for her brother to carry it out, Alex Cox. She had a power over him. And the testimony has been very clear inside the courtroom, the power she had and Chad over Zulema Pastines and Melanie Gibb and Melanie Boudreaux or Pulowski or her niece, these followers. And it really does seem like a cult. The more testimony unfolds inside this courtroom, this uh, power that they had over people and these extreme beliefs and making them feel like they belonged. And to the point that Alex Cox would do anything. Lori said, or Chad said, Vinny. So they're creating this world. So Lori, Lori Daybell is creating this world for herself where now she has a, a level of importance because she's got followers. She's got money from uh, the death of, of her new husband's wife, and they've got money flowing from the uh, kids who no longer are there. You don't have to pay for them. You don't have to take care of them, and you're getting their social security benefits. And she's sort of living this this new life for herself. So uh, putting all of that together, um, did they have some sort of master plan? Have, have prosecutors laid out a master plan that this couple had? Well, in the opening statements, Prosecutor Lindsay Blake of Fremont County, she did talk about the plan to do away with any obstacle that stood in the way of money, power, and sex. They have not really framed it in the work of this they're going to be the prophets leading the 144,000 although we've heard testimony of that but that's not how the prosecutors framed it this was more about you know lust and greed not so much about we have this divine task mission by god as she is a goddess chad dabel as a prophet to lead the 144,000. Doomsday was supposed to happen, remember, in July 2020. Uh, it, it came and went. Well, it sort, of, it sort of did with COVID. It almost did with COVID. Uh, Doomsday almost came, right. but uh, now it's gone. It, it came and went. So, okay. So I, 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 I think we did a good job here of working through um, the way prosecutors are presenting this very complicated factual scenario and breaking it down into these themes, which to me makes sense. It, it makes sense. Here's a woman who's using her sexuality uh, to, to, to 
get the man she wants in bed and they've got some money. They run off to Hawaii and they've, and they've got followers who will listen to what they, what they say and listen to what the prophet is telling Mm -hmm. them. This is, this is, it makes, it makes, it doesn't make sense to like in the real world, but it makes sense in terms of, of what actually happened here, which is still tough to believe. So let's, let's flip the coin over. Let's take a listen now. Uh, to Lori Daybell's defense team and their opening. The evidence will show she had a particular interest in religion in the end of times. You will recognize the quote-unquote end of times as something spoken of in the Holy Bible, the New Testament. Most of you will understand when I say that. Some people could care less about biblical prophecies. Some people care a lot about it. Thankfully, in this country, we get to worship how we choose. The evidence will show that once Lori and her friends met Chad Daybell, an author on religious subjects, her beliefs began to morph and to change. And that's where you come into this story because the, the stories diverge. Okay. He's not very excited about it, but he is telling us a story. So, And he um, kind of reminds me of Chad Daybell's monotone. <laughs> yeah. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it's an Idaho thing. Maybe it works. Maybe you can mesmerize mm-hmm. this jury. Um, but they're pointing the finger at Chad Daybell a little mm-hmm. bit as being the one who sort of changes Lori. Um, so... Where do we see the defense going in this case? Where, what is their real defense to all of this? Um, because she is, because she is found in Hawaii, right? She she doesn't tell anyone where her kids are. The kids are missing. They're buried, dead and buried in her new husband's backyard. So where do we think they're really going with this whole thing? You know, it's not super clear inside the courtroom. Based on their opening statements, essentially they're saying, don't blame Lori for what Chad may have done or what Alex may have done. And so far on Cross, what Cross we have seen, which has picked up on week three, because the evidence, again, cell phone, digital data, is pointing to Alex Cox. He was the one. His phone was pinging over the grave sites of the children in Chad Dable's backyard, so they're more aggressively trying to point that out. So that could be the direction that they're going. Interesting when he said, you know, once she met Chad, her beliefs started to expand. And so that seems to think they're blaming him on how extreme it did become. We shall see, Vinny. And and Alex Cox is her brother. He shot, and we we know this for a fact, that he shot and killed her husband, Charles Vallow. He claimed self-defense. The case was still being investigated. Lori's been charged uh, in that murder now in Arizona. That didn't happen in Idaho. Alex Cox, though, had an episode on the toilet, and he ended up dying. So he's not around. So he's a dead person you could point the finger at. Um, But they had an interesting relationship, uh, Lori and Alex. I mean, through the years, yeah, through the years, like he's followed her wherever she lives. He sort of shows up and is there. And there are stories about what these two would do. It, it was kind of a bizarre relationship. You notice how I left it there, Chanley, to see if you were going to give the details? Because I don't know if I want to. Thanks, Benny. I'll do the honors here. But yes, Alex Cox's prior wife. She actually was so concerned that she went to the Chandler, Arizona Police Department after Charles Vallow was shot by Alex to report the bizarre, unusual, weird relationship that Alex had with Lori. 
in that, you know, while she was married to Alex Cox, uh, his ex-wife, that they would simulate sex acts. They would openly talk about their sex life. It made her so uncomfortable, led to the demise of her marriage to Alex Cox. And that's brother uh, and sister, Lori and right. Alex, brother and sister, simulating sex acts. And, and my understanding is they did it in front of their parents, too. Yes. Apparently, it's a very it was very open uh, family life where you would talk about your intimate relations in front of everyone. And what's interesting, then, he's actually caught up with... Um, Lori and Alex's uncle, Rex Connor here. And he mentioned the dark humor of the family. So it was, it was just an odd family. And Alex was a comedian. He was a comedian. Yes. He did stand up. And one of his stand up routines, he jokes about um, Lori's third husband uh, shocking him with a stun gun and then going to jail for that. <laughs> it, it's 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 a bizarre tale and it's a strange relationship but it's it's really crucial to this entire thing um i wanted to play uh, a testimony from Kay woodcock because she's such an important part in this whole story if it wasn't for Kay woodcock and her husband larry um they're jj's grandparents um i don't think we would be here talking about this trial they are the ones um let's listen to Kay. Did you ever do interviews with news outlets to publicize the search for JJ? Objection relevancy. What's the relevance, Mr. Wood? Uh, just to lay the foundation of what uh, Mrs. Woodcock was doing, looking for a missing child, Your Honor. The objections overruled. You can answer. When we went in January of 2020, the media had learned of the story of the, the kids missing and we reached out any every media outlet was all over this and we talked to every outlet we could um we appeared on uh, talk shows we did everything we could to raise awareness for the kids missing and she has testified um her husband larry not on the list but has been in the courtroom how are they holding up the grandparents because they're the ones who alerted police that um, we haven't heard from our grandson. They live in Louisiana, and JJ was living in Idaho with with uh, Lori, and that's when the search began. Wellness check, and then Lori got up and left and fled to Hawaii. So, how are they holding up, Larry and Kay? Inside the courtroom, of course, emotions run high every time JJ Vallow's name is mentioned or how he passed away. They comfort each other. They are here every day. Now, they will sit outside on the more graphic testimonies when the lead detective was on the stand talking about you know, how J.J. was found in Chad Debo's backyard. They opted not to be in the courtroom for obvious reasons. And, I mean, it's, Vinny, I know you've been in lots of courtrooms also, but when you have a victim's family and you see them in the hallway or you see them coming or going from the courthouse or inside the courtroom during a recess or break, it's incredible how they're trying to encourage everyone else. We're trying to comfort them. You know, are you okay? And they're making sure everyone else is okay. That's the kind of people the Woodcocks, the Woodcocks are. Wow. Wow. That's, that's pretty amazing because it's a tough spot. It's a tough spot in the courtroom when it's your little grandson who is the victim and, and you've got to endure hearing all the details uh, about what happened. And what happened to JJ is really unthinkable, unspeakable. Here's Detective Hermosillo describing um, how they found J.J. when he was buried in Chad's backyard. They cut the seal on the body bag and 
unzipped the body bag, and it revealed the black plastic bag that had the duct tape. Um, he placed that bag onto the metal table. Um, it still had dirt on it from when we had taken it out of the ground. Um, they took photographs, did whatever they need to do, and uh, they cut down the center of the black plastic bag. Okay. When they cut down that plastic bag, what did you observe? I saw <clears throat> um, a little boy in red pajamas. Um, he had a white plastic bag around his head, several layers of duct tape from his chin to his forehead area. Uh, his arms were duct tape with several layers of duct tape. His arms were folded like this across his chest. You guys see that? Um, his feet were also duct taped and bound. He had a white and blue child's blanket um, placed on top of him. A moment of reality inside this courtroom, this bizarre case with these bizarre facts. Um, but this is the bottom line. Little J.J. bound, buried, murdered. Uh, we're going to continue our discussion. Chanley Painter is with us. When we come back, we're going to take you um, inside the world of Lori Daybell and her beliefs as a couple of her friends slash followers testify against her. Everyday people caught up in a plan to commit murder. Did you kill your mother? Yes, I did. The ultimate betrayals, friends and family turning on each other. Spell was broken when the handcuffs went click. But just who is the puppet and who's pulling the strings? Accomplice to Murder with Vinny Politan premieres May 7th. Only on Court TV. Did Lori ever indicate anything about having a special mission here on Earth? Yes. And what did she tell you about that? She felt that she was um, part of the 144,000. And then as she developed her relationship with Chad, she felt like they were the head leaders of it. And when you talk about the 144,000, can you explain a little bit about what that would mean? Um, it's referenced from scripture and the Bible and, and the Doctrine and Covenants about uh, a group of 144,000 that would be here uh, during the return of our Savior, and they would help do a great mission of missionary work throughout the world, and they would have you know, a lot of um, a spiritual endowment from on high. So yeah. if someone were to be the head of that 144,000, would that be a pretty high calling? Absolutely. Would that be a position of pretty significant, pretty significant power? Yes. Power. There's the power theme. Chanley Painter still with us. Chanley, that's Melanie Gibb um, testifying for the state. Such a crucial witness in this case, an insider. Um, give us a little background about Melanie Gibb and, and her connection to Lori. 
So Melanie Gibb met Lori Vallow Daybell in Arizona in 2018, and they they attend this Preparing the People conference together where they first meet Chad. But I believe they met at you know the Mormon Church, and they had some commonalities. They hit it off, and they, they were best friends, so close. Melanie was a part of this inner circle. She was the up close eyewitness to everything Lori and Chad from fall 2018 to you know their arrest. So would you describe Melanie Gibb as a follower of Chad? Was she part of this inner circle? And I'm, I'm trying to figure out exactly how this group functioned and, and related to one another. So based on the testimony the jury's been hearing in the courtroom, now when Melanie Gibb was on the stand, she basically taught the jurors all of these fringe beliefs of Chad and Lori. But she would distance herself as far as she believed 100% was sold out. She said she always had this sort of hesitation. She didn't have the confirmation from the spirit as they did. That's how it came across in the courtroom. But if you listen to like Zulema's testimony, Melanie was always there. She was always helping recruit members to be a part of this 144,000. Like April Raymond's testimony. Melanie was there at that lunch with April Raymond trying to recruit her to leave her children behind and her husband to be a part of this group. So it's a little contradictory. Well, yeah, contradictory from whether or not Melanie Gibb was, you know, maybe third in line or if she was just someone who was kind of hesitant, went along with it because she felt included and and wanted to be friends with Lori. It's amazing. Right. And and recruiting people to be part of this group and, and this following. And yet there seems to be a theme of to be a part of the group. You you. You can't be with your children. You can't be with your spouse. That's that makes no sense. That makes no sense. That's where the that's where the break is, right? Because if it was like, hey, it's a religion, yeah, it's a little bit uh, on the on the fringe, but people are entitled to believe what they want. But when that belief, unless your spouse was a part of one, the one hundred forty four thousand, then you then. And, but could you bring the kids? Is the question? Can you bring the kids? Are they yeah. going to be invited? Or are they got to be out of the way? That's that's the that's where you run into the conflict between, you know, exercising and, and practicing some form of whatever religion you believe. Um, and then it turns into the harm. And here the harm is to spouses and children who apparently weren't part of this hundred and forty four thousand. Um, let's let's listen to Melanie Gibb here. Talk about um, Lori describing to her the relationship between Lori and husband number five, Chad Daybell. Do you recall Lori telling you anything in November regarding her, she and Chad's relationship? Yes. And what did she tell you? She told me that they had been married, um, I believe, five, five, four or five times. And she would go into different details with me about who she was, what character she was, and what character he was. Do you recall if she said anything to you about going to the temple? Yes. And what did she tell you regarding going to the temple? She would um, tell me that, yes, that weekend that he came to Arizona, that um, they met in the temple together, and they were somewhere in there, like in just like maybe a waiting area room, um, that, that they were sealed together by... I, I believe Moroni was there and 
possibly, I believe she said Jesus Christ, and that they, that, that relationship they had multiple lives, it was kind of like a reunited again, they got to be sealed there. It wasn't in a, a sealing room officially done by the church or anything like that. And can you explain a little bit about the relevance of being sealed? Um, the teachings of our church talk about when you're sealed to a companion on this earth that you are for that you are sealed for time and all eternity. And when you say the teachings of our church, are you comfortable sharing what church you're a member of? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. I'm sure some members of the LDS not happy about that testimony. Um, we know they, they they've they've had their fingerprints uh, on this case in terms of writing letters and trying to get people to be not involved and trying to keep the LDS out of this trial. But the LDS is part of this trial, as we heard from the testimony of Melanie Gibb. This is this is where it starts. And if the beliefs then uh, extend beyond the LDS beliefs, they they do because uh, they start talking about zombies, et cetera. But this is the, the basis of all this. So this ceiling, Chanley, this is taking place, it seems, while both are still married, or is it just Chad is married to Tammy and Charles is dead? Do we have the, the, uh, the time frame of this ceiling where these two who've been married five times before playing other characters are now uh, sealed? I'm trying to remember the exact time that they were in the temple sealed. It was, I believe it was before Tammy died. I'll confirm that date, but it was definitely before they were actually married in Hawaii. <laughs> so they are in the temple. Yeah, it, it, it seems like Tammy would have to be alive because Tammy dies and within 17 days they're married in Hawaii. So this uh, had to have happened beforehand. And you think of Lori Daybell, like... She's saying, well, we were married five other times. Plus, she's on like her fifth husband. This is amazing how many times one woman could be married. Vinny, I found it. So it's two weeks after they met. Two weeks after they met. So that means her husband's alive. His wife is alive. Yet they are sealed together. That's wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. That speaks volumes. There's the sex part, folks. There's the sex part. Disguised mm -hmm. as religion. Mm. All right, let's get now to the darkness. Um, Melanie Gibb here describing um, the, some of the beliefs and, 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 and how it goes from, hey, I've got like a husband, I've got children, to all of a sudden that now they need to go. Let's listen. Do you recall Lori ever telling you about a light and dark scale? Yes. Did she ever explain to you what the light and dark scale was? She did. And what did she tell you regarding that? Um, she told me that people that were light were people that before they came to this planet, when we lived um, in a pre-mortal realm, basically our spirits lived there before we physically came here, um, that those that signed contracts and made agreements with the Savior were light, and those that were dark were those that signed contracts with Satan. Do you recall when she first started telling you about light and dark, the light and dark scale? It was sometime after she met Chad that few weeks um, when she met him. I would say probably pretty immediate. I I'm, it's just, it feels like it was like it could have been possibly that weekend or just days after that, after she met him. I want to play um, 
some testimony from Zulema Pastanez, who is another one of these insiders. This is a woman who ends up marrying Lori's brother, Alex Cox. Um, here she is describing, and, and Tylee and JJ are the two children of Lori. Here's now where where we've diverged from religion into some dark place in, in, involving demons and zombies, etc. Let's listen. Did you ask where Tylee was? Yes. And um, what did Lori tell you about where Tylee was? She said she had to, she had to be free. Okay, so she had told you prior to the move to Rexburg that JJ too was being attacked by demons. Correct. Okay, what did she say about whether um, Tylee was being attacked by demons or evil spirits? Right before she moved to Rexburg, she said that Tylee had been. Uh, possessed by um, evil spirit or a demon, and she called it um, Hillary. Hillary was the evil spirit. All right, Chanley, so this is a theme, right? People turn dark, according to Lori, and then all of a sudden they end up dead. Yep. So, and this, again, these beliefs espoused soon after meeting Chad Daybell, according to the testimony where people were light or dark, and it began with Charles Vallow being dark. Charles Vallow apparently had three or four dark spirits taking over his body. They would conduct these elaborate castings, the jury now so familiar with, and they would cast one demon out, many, but another one would take over his body. So he went from Ned Schneider to Garrett to Hiplos, the most evil dark spirit. And then finally, uh, God delivered Hiplos to Lori and Alex, according to what she texted after Charles's death. And then, and then the same with uh, JJ and Tylee were both inhabited by dark spirits. And then suddenly two weeks before Tammy Daybell's death, she was inhabited by a dark spirit, Vinny, Viola. And this is the connection. We bring it back now to the trial. This is a conspiracy case. They're not saying that Lori actually physically killed anyone, but conspired with her brother and uh, her fifth husband, Chad, to commit the murders of these three people, three innocent people. And this is where the conspiracy comes in, that she is part of this. She is labeling them as zombies and then having Alex take care of it. All right. We've got more to get to. When we come back, we're going to hear what may be the most important and significant evidence in the case. It is Lori's oldest child, who's an adult, her son, Colby. He's the one child who's not dead, was not living with her at the time. But after his Sister and brother are found buried in her new husband's backyard. He, he talks to her on the phone, confronts her, and, and really cross-examines his own mother. It's a recording the jury heard, and you will hear it next. They're not you don't know what happened. 
stuff. That's Colby Ryan, Lori Daybell's oldest son, going after his mom, calling her a murderer, calling her a murderer. Chanley, tell us about this moment inside the courtroom and tell us the significance of the testimony of Colby Ryan. Yeah, Vinny, so far, the biggest moment of the trial, her own son taking the stand, he wouldn't look at her until the very beginning, he's handed a photo to identify and he glares over to his mother sitting there who, who was just wanting, like, you could just tell, look at me. You know, she was longingly, lovingly looking at her son and he glares over to her and goes, that's my sister, Tylee. And then they show her a picture of Tylee and then of JJ. And then it culminated with this Johan's phone call. It's agonizing to listen to. He's saying things that uh, I've talked talk to other family members, wish they could have said to Lori Vallow. And he's sitting there in the courtroom. The jury is you know, leaning in. They're listening to this unfold. Uh, Lori is really not reacting while the phone calls play, but there's a moment in this call where she laughs at him. And in that moment in the courtroom, Colby just darts his eyes over to his mom and glares at her again for the second time, only twice he looks over to his mother's to glare at her and I mean wow I'm, my jaw was on the floor listening to this I thought wow I mean he is telling her what I'm sure prosecutors want to say in closing arguments Vinny absolutely and that's what uh, every viewer would want to do that has been following all of this and any every listener to confront Lori Daybell because she may not testify you know she has the right to testify it'll be her decision right. we'll see if that moment happens um but prosecutors actually don't need that moment now because they got it so much more real when it's when it's the son own flesh and blood believing that his own mother is the murderer of his brother and sister uh, to me that is incredibly persuasive it it gives it gives the jury permission to believe that a mother could do this because her own son believes that she could do this mm-hmm. so um it, Really, really such an important part of this entire case. Um, speaking of Lori in the courtroom, how would you describe her demeanor inside? And, and is there any change when the jury's there and when the jury's not there? You know, there really isn't a change in her demeanor. That's interesting. A lot of times with defendants, we'll see a change once the jury walks in. So she she arrives into court with, you know, before the jury gets there, the judge, and she's with her attorney. She's smiling. She's chatting. She's leaning over. She's even leaning over to the front row of the gallery where the defense investigator is talking to him. And she'll do the same thing with the jury in there during a a break or a sidebar or a testimony. She's leaning over, chatting, whispering. Uh, She'll smile. She'll sometimes smirk. And sometimes she looks pretty serious. Today, uh, with her sister Summer in the courtroom for the first time this week, Benny, she seemed a little more demure, not as outgoing smiley and chatty for example this morning she sat with her back towards the gallery for the first time i've seen in three weeks interesting interesting she is unlike any criminal defendant we've ever seen at court tv and the only time she really sorry the only time she really showed emotion was when colby was on the stand 
uh, when he was being crossed about, she was a good mother growing up. She did have some tears in her eyes. And and to me, again, that reveals, you know, she was deemed not competent to stand trial um, a few months ago, a year ago. I'm trying to put the time together here. Uh, but but it, it appears to me from every description that you've given and the way she's acting and reacting, it's all, um, it, it sort of makes sense. Like she's cognizant. She understands what's happening. She's not in la-la land. She knows exactly what's going on. She knows who's on the stand, what they're saying, how important it is, and is having these types of reactions. How about the courtroom itself, the the atmosphere there? The courtroom is... Well, it's uh, it's one of those where you have people traveling from all over the nation to be here. I met a mom and daughter from Portland, Oregon, who flew in just two days to be here and sit in the courtroom. So there are rules that you have to follow. You have to register for a seat, you know, 24 hours ahead of time online. Uh, they they sell out, sell out, but are reserved pretty quickly then every day. There's a limited amount of seats, and it fills up inside the courtroom with members of media you know, public locally and from all over. And then there's a section reserved for family members in the middle. So the marshals and deputies inside the courtroom run a tight ship and there are strict rules you have to follow. And they've already kicked out one person and they'll take your phone if it goes off. So people are obeying the rules and they're quiet, you know, usually in a courtroom during before court starts or during a recess, People start chatting and it gets a little bit noisy. Not in this one because we're all scared to be to get in trouble uh, by the court staff. So uh, that's kind of what it's like. And all eyes, you know, are on Lori. As soon as she walks in, you can just tell people in the gallery, what is she doing now? How is she acting? Now, a lot of the focus uh, on Lori obviously is is on the two children. And that's how the entire investigation began, looking for JJ, then looking for Tylee. But there's a third victim, which is Tammy Daybell which was Chad's wife for, I think, like 28 years, something like that, five children all grown up. Uh, now she's gone. Here's Chad Daybell in, in a phone call describing what happened to Tammy. I just want to testify that I, I know Tammy does. And the conspiracy theories, my sister-in-law's right behind it all, and I hope that you're not being influenced by that. Sort of master plan. There's no way, Lori, and I should ever come up with this. 
that one line gets me, Chanley. She just passed away. The people don't just pass away. That's it, it, not how it works. Oh, she just passed away. Mm-hmm. That's that's all there is to it. It's that simple. Right. Uh, what are prosecutors saying happened to Tammy here? Well, that she was asphyxiated. She was murdered uh, sometime. They the timeline is still shaping up. So it it looks like you know Alex Cox is in the area of the Daybell home the evening before she's found deceased in the bed allegedly and so i believe they said in opening statements that even though garth lived at the home at the time he had gone to work that evening so there was a window where he wasn't home uh before he came back to go to sleep so they're shaping it up to garth is gone alex cox is nearby chad is at home a lot of communications between all three chad Lori, alex at this time all day leading up to it and then she's found deceased the next day and they say she's super healthy she wasn't on very many prescriptions that she didn't go to the doctor that often because she was never sick. I talked to some of her family members. They say she 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 was a runner. She would go out and work in the yard. She had her uh, garden and her ducks that she would raise and she would walk the dogs. Vinny. So the testimony is the opposite of what we just heard Chad say. Yeah, she didn't just pass away. That's not what happened. I don't think the jury's going to believe she just passed away either. It's amazing. Alex Cox appears to be... Um, the hitman for this cult. He's taking everyone out. He ends up dead himself. Like I said, he had some sort of a physical episode on the toilet and then died at the hospital later. Um, Still sketchy there as well. I think in another podcast, we'll dive a little deeper into that. But Chanley Painter, thank you so much. You're out there in Boise. You'll be there till the end of this case. Um, She's on my show every night, folks, giving us every detail Um, right on Court TV, your front row seat to justice. Thanks so much, Chanley. Thanks, Benny. All right, folks, um, we are out of time for this episode of the Court TV podcast. Once again, thank you so much for downloading. And um, make sure if you're interested in this case, which I don't know why you wouldn't be, uh, you can watch my show every night from 8 to 10, 8 to 10 p.m. And then we have coverage and updates all day long on Court TV. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.